Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Dua Lipa at Your Service, my new podcast where I'm sitting down with some of the world's most inspiring minds to give you a look under the hood at what makes them all tick. Before we dive into this week's episode, I want to thank everyone who took the time to send in their thoughts and voice notes. I was really overwhelmed by all your lovely comments about my interview with Olivier Roustang. Here's one I wanted to play to you. Hi, Dua. I'm Gabriel. I'm 26 and I'm from Brazil. First of all, congratulations on the podcast. It's amazing and so inspiring. Also, I have to tell you that I can't wait to see you in Brazil. I am going with my best friend and we already have our tickets and it's going to be so special for us. I know you read a lot and I do too. I'm always screenshotting your Instagram whenever you post a book. So I would love to hear you talk about it more. Whatever you're reading or what you're excited to read and you could ask guests for book recommendations. I know a lot of people would love to, to hear you talk about books. Congratulations again and lots of love from Brazil. Bye. Ah, thanks so much, Gabriel. That was so, so kind. I also really can't wait for the show in Brazil. Last time I was there, I was supporting Coldplay. So I'm very, very excited to come back and do my own show. It's definitely such an amazing place to perform and the energy is always so exciting. So I'm really, really excited about that. And thank you so much for asking for my book recommendations. I do read a lot, especially now that I'm on the road. And at the moment, I just started a book that came recommended to me called The Bone Clocks by David Mitchell. I'm kind of a sucker for a page turner and this one's proving to be one. And I'm so glad that you've suggested asking our guests for their book recommendations as well because today's guest is one of my favorite authors of all time, Lisa Tadeo. And I'll be asking her for her book tips at the end of the interview. So stay tuned for that. So Lisa spent eight years reporting her incredible non-fiction work, Three Women. This book topped the New York Times bestseller list when it was released in 2019. She follows and chronicles the sexuality of three women who all come from very different walks of life and it will soon be turned into a Showtime TV series, which will be starring Shailene Woodley. And it's set to premiere in November and we just can't wait. Last year, Lisa also released her first ever novel, Animal, which is a story about in her words, sisterhood and rage. We spoke about her own books and much more, including a must-hear list of New York City recommendations. And I think I've made a new friend. So without further ado, here's At Your Service with very special guest, Lisa Tadeo. Lisa Tadeo <laughs> is joining us today on the podcast. I'm so excited, Lisa, to have you on. I am such a massive fan of your work. I absolutely love your writing and I feel like you're definitely one of those authors that, you know, you've got a nonfiction and a fiction book, but when I read your work and when I read the articles that you've written, I really get lost in your world as a woman, in my experience as a woman. I feel like you depict it so perfectly. And so I'm so excited to be talking to you today. So thank you so much for joining us. Oh my gosh, it is completely reciprocated. I have a six-year-old. One of the things that I do when we're listening to music is I'm always like, just wait, just listen to the lyrics. You know, the lyrics are so important to me, obviously, because I care about words. And your lyrics is just, you know, they're so perfect. They're so smart. They are so, oh, there's such a story you. behind every movement. And I just, 
I love all of it, but I just wanted to say that to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I guess it's so important to like think about things and like a way of growth, you know, wherever you start off, you're always going to grow from that point on. It's always good to see yourself in that kind of trajectory. And I guess for you, for example, it seems like your journey started in 2010, where you wrote this article about Rachel Ukatel. I think that's how you say her name. I'm not quite sure. But (laughs) um, if listeners don't remember, she had an affair with Tiger Woods, which really exposed this really sleazy world of VIP nightclubs and what you would call half hookers. And so I I really learned a lot in that (laughs) article, actually, because I felt like nightlife in the UK was quite different. But I can also see the kind of dark undertones around that. And what I also found really interesting is how that article also took you on your journey to write three women. I'd love to know like how that all happened. I had been working many years at Golf Magazine, which I know is not, not exactly the, uh, the trajectory that I had expected for myself, but it was a job. And so I was thinking about golf a lot, even though it was not something that was near and dear <laughs> to my heart. And the Tiger Woods story, which I ended up writing for um, New York Magazine, I was so intrigued that, you know, it was this sort of world that was reductively, you know, in a headline called the half hooker economy. But the idea about these bottle girls who were not selling their bodies, they were selling experiences with Mm. themselves and their bodies in some cases. And I found it so interesting that whole world and the way that it was transactional, but in a much more muted way. And I just became interested in in the world of the women more so than the singular experience of Tiger Woods, because that kind of felt a little rote to me. So I sort of delved into the world of those women, the women at clubs. Like I spent a lot of nights, you know, drinking alone in nightclubs, <laughs> feeling very... <laughs> Sounds <potential>. interesting. <laughs> it's yeah, interesting. Maybe that's like, a, that's a whole other interview, <laughs> <Totally>. I feel. <laughs> There's potentially nothing sadder than going to a, a bumping nightclub alone, gazing into the VIP section and scribbling into a notebook or a phone and not having people think you're a total weirdo. But I, I was so... <laughs> I was so intrigued by that whole world. And also, you know, what I think is so interesting is that there's all these paths that women can take and there's the quote unquote right path and the wrong path. And these women were making a lot of money and Mm. they were also going on really cool trips to like St. Bart's and, you know, weekends on yachts. And, And if they were handling themselves in a way that they felt okay and safe, then I thought that, you know, it was weird that there was so much judgment about it. Like she went to college. Why would she do that? It's like, cause she's making, (laughs) she's making $20,000 this week. She could have been making $25, but you know, she made made a choice. Um, I really wanted to tell the story of the world from these women's perspectives. And my current editor read that story that I wrote and asked me if I wanted to write a book. And that was the beginning. That's amazing. And I guess diving into that whole female experience, then you went on. And I know originally, you know, three women wasn't meant to be about three women. You didn't really know whether you were just going to do it about women or whether it's going to be men and women, but you did like eight years of research, Mm -hmm. right, into it. How did you do the selection? Like, I I mean, you know, three women, such an amazing book. And for anyone listening who hasn't read it yet, and I was very excited actually while I was, uh, I was with my friends 
a couple of days ago and my friend Rosie's like, oh my God, have you read the book Three Women? I'm like, are you joking? I'm like, I'm literally <laughs> interviewing Lisa. Like, it's amazing because everybody loves it to really just brutally summarize the book. It's really a story of female desire through the experiences of three women. And you've got Maggie, who alleges that she had a sexual relationship with her high school teacher. Then you have Lena, who uh, feels trapped in like a passionless marriage and embarks on a wild and sometimes desperate affair with her high school boyfriend. And then you have Sloane, who lives in like a small town and has sex with other people while her husband watches. And so like, (laughs) how do you go about writing so honestly? about female desire? How did you get these women to open up to you and talk to you about their experiences? And how did you like select these three women to be the three women? I think that I've never felt like a good journalist. And I think that that served me well (laughs) in writing this book because whenever (laughs) I'm incredibly non-invasive and I don't like asking the quote unquote tough questions. Like I was fine Mm -hmm. when I was doing political stories, but when it comes to, you know, private citizens, people who are not in the public eye, it never felt right to me to say, you know, tell me all that. Well, what about this? How did you feel about that? Why did you Mm -hmm. do that? Those sort of rapid fire questions that I knew could elicit uh, quick and genuine responses always left me feeling icky. You know, I didn't want people to feel like they had been sort of taken from. So I wanted everyone who spoke to me to do it because they wanted to. And the way that I did that was by taking it incredibly slow, which is why it it took eight years. And also with Lena, who is the woman in Indiana who's in this passionless marriage and just wants to be kissed and has a husband who does not want to kiss her anymore. I met Lena by, I just moved to Indiana from New York City because I felt like I was not finding the stories in New York City. New York City is both the epicenter of of the world (laughs) and also the complete negation of it. So I moved to Indiana because it was near the Kinsey Institute where they studied sex and I just really randomly did that had no money, rented a small, weird apartment in rural Indiana, started a discussion group in this doctor's office, Who this doctor who's kind of nuts, but really great about helping me out. And I met Lena and she said she just wanted to be kissed and her husband no longer wanted to kiss her on the mouth. But what I said to her from the beginning and what I said to each of the three women and all the women and the people I spoke to was, you know, talk to me and tell me as much as you feel comfortable. If you at any point feel like, oh, you've told me too much or you don't want to say that or you want to retract that, we'll retract whatever you want or delete everything and pretend it never happened, which, you know, several people took me up on, which is, you know, another reason why it took a long time. But but it also made the people who did end up continuing to talk to me to feel safe that they didn't have to worry about what was going to come out of their mouths if it was going to be too telling because we could just excise it later. Yeah. You know, I guess there is such an importance of obviously building that trust with the people that you're you're speaking to and the women as well. But we're so like encouraged to like really speak up about the things that we don't want as women. You know, we don't want to be treated in certain ways, but there's so much shame or there's this like culture of shame that's really connected to what we do want. Exactly. And I think that's why your writing really kind of hits home for so many women because finally feels like we have like this voice or other women's experiences that we can 
listen to or talk about or understand. And that, you know, it's kind of taking away the shame from sex, really. Mm -hmm. um, exactly. I mean, I think that one of the things that is the most heartbreaking to me is that in the past couple of years with the Me Too movement and beyond, we have been very loudly and clearly telling men what we don't want. But what I've noticed my whole life and what I've noticed even more as a sort of inverse reaction to that positive step forward is that we feel as women that we all need to kind of be on the same page in order to ascend as a gender, which I don't think is true. There's a lot of pressure on the definition of feminism and how it needs to be if you like the quote-unquote wrong man, if you're chasing after a man, that's like, oh, now you're no longer a strong woman. Yeah. But why are you not considered a strong woman for chasing after a man the way that men chase after? Chase I mean, after we're women. still dealing totally. with that same denigration, that same like, you know, it's like the old adage of why buy the milk when you can get the cow or for, or however it goes, you know what yeah. I'm talking about. But it's that same thing. It's like we're still using that to imprison women in not doing what they want to do. And what I found fascinating about Lena, the woman in Indiana, is that she was chasing after this man. She had no money apart from her husband's, you know, income. She had no ability to to really exist on her own and didn't know how to, and yet was moving mountains so that she could kiss someone because someone else wouldn't kiss her. Mm -hmm. And the idea that that made her desperate in the eyes of some was so upsetting to me. And I think that, you know, anytime a friend of mine was like, oh, that's so pathetic, or a reader, I would be like, well, you know, I think calling a woman pathetic is the most victimizing thing you can do. Absolutely. And it's so weird to me that we continue to do that, that we continue to want this one broad definition of feminism when really feminism should be about owning each of our own desires and wants and being able to communicate them to one another clearly and without fear of retribution. Yeah. Lena's story was really interesting to me when I was reading it because there's that kind of feeling of indifference that maybe a woman has with a man that we don't really want to feel is that kind of mm -hmm. you know you don't want to be left on red you don't want to be ghosted you don't want to like mm -hmm. feel like you don't know where you stand in a relationship or whatever that situation may be you know I think just that kind of human experience essentially is so interesting and you know who who does know the right way of what mm -hmm. feminism is I don't think that in any way what Lena did was like weakness she was actually being very strong and actually quite brave mm -hmm. to go out and get something that she felt she needed in her life and in her world yeah. And the other thing with that is that, you know, I think any of us can kind of attest to it. When we want something, when there's one person that you want and are obsessing over, the idea that you should stop and go seek out something that is better for you, it's like no one's going to do that. You know? <laughs> so the notion that we're sitting there in the midst of our friends and sisters' obsessions and saying, you got to stop that. It's like, that's never going to happen. Never, yeah, yeah, yeah. Never. So the it least you can help. do... Exactly. And I always think of like Miranda and Carrie and, you know, the original Sex in the City. And when Miranda is telling Carrie, you know, to just get over it and I don't want to hear it anymore. And it's like, when you say you don't want to hear it anymore, why do you not want to hear it anymore? Why are we so militant about somebody else having to get better in order for mm. us to be able to exist in the world that day? 
Yeah, like, well, well, maybe we think that, like, tough love is kind of the way that we need to be around our friends in right. order to not see them be hurt. I can relate to that in a way where you're just like, yeah. okay, just get over it because just clearly this yeah. is just, in the <laughs> yeah. long run, this is actually going to make you more upset. Right. So you see it in a completely different light. But then you also don't want to be, and I think I've I've learned this over time, like, that I will never be the I told you so friend. No mm-hmm. matter what, you always want to be the person that will be there to listen to it, even if you saw it coming, you know, to be there for someone. And I feel like a lot of my friends are like that with me, you know, after a while, they're like, well, you know, we saw it coming, but (laughs) we're still here to look after you no matter what. And I think that's so much more important. We'll be right back after this short break. I mean, it's it's so cool because now with three mi- women, you're like in the process of adapting it into a Showtime drama, which I'm yes. very excited about. <laughs> and I'm also wondering, like, have you had any concerns on like giving up narrative control? Because now you're working with a bunch of writers or are you doing yeah. most of it? So it was me and about four other writers mm-hmm. in a writer's room over the pandemic. I'm saying over the pandemic as though we're past it, but it appears not. <laughs> yeah. um, so I've written about half of the episodes and kind of, you know, overseeing each of them. So I don't feel like I've lost. Uh, I mean, yes, of course, there's some elements of, oh, you know, having to, it, it, it's a much different process to to write a book. And and even though you have an editor and other things, it's really just one person for the most part. And a show is is many, many more. And what's been so amazing to me, because we've shot the first two episodes thus far, and our director is this Danish impresario named Louise Friedberg. And it's been amazing to see how so many different people can create this new iteration. And it is going to be out in November of this year on Showtime. Oh my God. That's so (laughs) exciting. (laughs) It is. That's really, really exciting. Something to look forward to this year. And I understand there's going to be a new character introduced. Well, I guess it's it's like a new character. It's a character (laughs) called Gia, um, who persuades each of the women to tell their stories. And what was that process like for you? You know, (laughs) working with someone and writing yourself explicitly into like the story and, you know, how weird is it also going to be like seeing yourself depicted on telly? Part of it is absolutely humiliating. And the other part of it (laughs) is completely feels organic and right for the show. And I think that's the thing that was very hard for me is my husband who works is one of the writers. It was his point that Gia had to be a character and not because, you know, he wanted any part of my life or our life on there, but because, you know, we were telling these three disparate stories and... I remember having a couple of conversations with people early on in the process, other producers and stuff, and they were like, well, what if Sloane's husband is the lawyer in Maggie's story? You know, these these sort of like uh, these contrived. Yeah. And it all felt so contrived and silly. And what also felt not great was to just tell the three stories without linking them. It's one thing in the book, you know where the sort of book is coming from. But part of what so many people ask me about is how I got the women to talk, how I met them, you know, all of those questions. And one of the feelings was that that was a really important part of the process of the honesty of the women and the sort of bravery. And to really show that 
would mean showing how it came about, which also mm-hmm. happened to be the truth. So Gia, who is a sort of me, stand in as being played by the amazing Shailene Woodley. And it is really her. amazing to see her sort of, you know, just... It, it's sometimes like when we talk, I'm like, oh God, is she watching me <laughs> to like take to, <laughs> to do some quirk that I'm now going to see on screen and be like, oh, she like, was I didn't watching know I that. had that twitch. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, but uh, no, it's been a humbling, humiliating, and really beautiful experience. Yeah, that sounds also really interesting because I feel like it will give um, the viewers an insight also to who you are a little bit more and, and kind of understand maybe your your background and how it all kind of got to where... I mean, you've got quite an interesting love story as well, which I actually want to touch on because I have read about this and I I think it's it's very sweet and, and really interesting. But I'm going to get to that when I ask about my lists because it's kind of in, okay. in relation to that. <laughs> but, um, you know, the same kind of goes for me. It's when I'm writing my songs where I feel like I want to be able to tell a story, but I also don't want to put my whole life on blast completely in front of everyone and then start getting text messages from people being like is this song about me or like is this about that so I I completely I completely relate to that and during the summer I also read Animal your debut novel which I love Um, it's very dark and it centers around Joan who's a woman in her mid-30s who I guess is in a spiral of self-destructive behavior which is brought on by sexual trauma and grief and I know that makes it sound like a like a heavy lift but it's also got like a really <laughs> sharp wit and and a really like frantic pace that just really like swept me along as a reader what is it about the female experience or being a woman yourself that's just so intriguing like between the two books like maybe is it that the parallels of like your own personal experience and then Joan's experience or, you know, I I feel like that is like a common theme that trickles in your, in your writing. Yeah. You know, I think for me, I was raised by a father who was like, you can do anything. And by a mother who felt the opposite, you know, she had come from such poverty and was barely surviving when she met my father so that she didn't really have you know, the idea that she could do anything. Yet my father would teach me the opposite path. And as I got older and I saw that, you know, specifically in my 20s, the notion that there'd be like boys nights out and the girls would stay at home. And and I was like, wait, why are we letting the guys? Yeah. Do, I, I what about work, the girls? No, I, exactly. I work yeah, 20 yeah. hours a day. Where's my go to my man cave? You know, yeah. like, there's still the, that societal stuff is still there. And that societal hangover really kind of enrages me. So there's a mm-hmm. lot of that in my writing is the idea of like, even though we espouse equality in the workplace and childcare and all this, but then there's the little moments where we're still dealing with this patriarchal society that we've been living through. And it, it frankly annoys me. So there's a lot of rage about that. But in Animal, I would say there's that, but then there's also the rage of grief. In Animal, you know, the main character loses her parents in kind of a a wild way. And I lost my parents not as young as Joan, the character, did or in the same way. But I did lose them and it was too early and it was very formative. And it really sort of reconstructed the way that I, the way that I see life. Mm -hmm. And so I think the rage of grief is something I'm really interested in. 
you know, when you lose someone and you walk out in the street and you see a couple of like assholes, <laughs> you're like, why is that person alive and not this person? Yeah. And so there's gender rage, there's grief rage. I mean, I definitely have a lot of of rage that I try to work through <laughs> in my writing. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like I can relate to to some extent. I mean, the patriarchal rage, I feel like answering to men, period, anyone mm-hmm. that just, you know, wants to have the upper hand. Like, I feel like I try and portray myself so much stronger in my mm-hmm. Music because I feel you like do. I also manifest that energy. I'm like, okay, if I can tell myself that I'm the female alpha, I'm the fucking female alpha, and that's just what it's yeah. gonna be. And, and <laughs> exactly. I'm gonna be that strong person in every relationship that I'm in. And I mean, there's definitely a downfall to that to some extent <laughs> because I feel like you you put yourself up in this like, well, I'm strong, I can do everything myself, I don't need help around the house, like, well, I could just do everything. Exactly. <laughs> but I mean, it's amazing to be able to kind of put that rage into something really great and interesting and insightful and a story that we can all kind of sink our teeth into and and feel that patriarchal rage, the rage of grief, all those things that you're depicting so perfectly, really. Um, thank you. Yeah. And, you know, the themes, I feel like there's lots of themes in in your writing that are like mother-daughter and father-daughter relationships. And that features a lot in your work. And your mother was Italian Mm -hmm. and my parents were from Kosovo. And I feel like mm-hmm. we have some common ground in the sense that we were both raised in countries that our parents emigrated to. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like that influenced the way that you grew up? Yeah, I've always felt like an outsider. Mm. You know, when I was a kid, I came home from school and I don't know if the brand is still around, but there was a brand of athletic like soccer shorts and stuff called Umbros. Do you remember? Oh yeah, yeah, of course. Okay. And I came home and my mother's like, I'm like, I want Umbros. And she's like, it's Umbro. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, oh, okay. So I went to school the next day with my like (laughs) Nutella sandwiches. And I was like, guys, it's Umbro. And they were like, ew, no, it's not. And there were so many things like that. And they were like, Lisa's eating chocolate sandwiches again and she doesn't know how to talk. So there was a lot of me feeling like an outsider. My mom also didn't drive. So like I couldn't hang out with friends after school. And it was hard. So I definitely grew up always wanting to belong and trying to figure out how I was going to say Umbro correctly the next day. Like, what was the new Umbro? What was yeah. what was the next thing that was going to mess up my life? <laughs> do you do you feel that yeah, strike? I mean, massive. First of all, the Nutella sandwiches. I feel like <laughs> that was definitely something that my mom sent me off to school with. Um, but I had that feeling, you know, the outsider feeling. I was constantly feeling like I was the new girl. I was trying to kind mm-hmm. of create friendships. And I also moved around a lot. You know, I was born and raised in London. And for mm-hmm. me, just having a name like Dua, all I wanted was to try and fit in and like be normal. Yeah. I was like, I'll take anything, anything at yeah. this point, you know, just to kind of fit <laughs> in where I didn't have to like spell it out for people or pronounce it or try and correct right. people. And then I went and lived in Kosovo when I was 11 years old and I was like perfect like I'm going to go to the school and everyone's going to say my name right and it's going to be great and then all of a sudden I'm like the English girl speaking Albanian oh, with like a bit of an English God. accent so I just felt like in every place oh. that I went to there was like a little bit yeah. of like a disconnect but it really made me who I am you know it really helped shape my mm-hmm. identity and it made me tougher I feel like any experience that I went through I you know speaking two languages 
the whole thing like twisted my world around but there are so many great moments because of it you know that yeah I mean you wouldn't I'm, be you I'm if really, it hadn't been for all yeah that I'm things. really grateful yeah. for so I, I I've learned to embrace it although that wasn't always the case from the from the beginning and you know the whole kind of like small town mentality thing that I feel like I've had to grow out of I think that's also where maybe like the patriarchal rage comes from maybe mm-hmm. but I read somewhere that you said that you didn't really talk about sex with your parents I mean honestly <laughs> who did um no. without it being embarrassing but do you feel like you could have written these books if they were still around to read them um no I don't I really don't it's like with Maggie and the young woman and three women who um, had the alleged relationship with her teacher. I knew that the larger part of the world of like thinking America and the rest of the world was going to believe her. But what I also knew was that she was going to have to answer to people within that community. Those were the ones that she was going to think about, the ones that were going to make her feel embarrassed or ashamed. And I think that's totally similar with books and the way that I write. I don't care if someone in, you know, Tuscaloosa is like, what hell is this girl talking about? But God forbid, you know, it's someone from my high school or my mother reading it. I'd be like, oh God, they're going to find out that I wasn't who they thought I was. You know, and I think that's such a thing. That feeling of worrying about the people closest to you and what they're going to think. That even if it's not about being worried about the whole world and what they think. It's about being worried about the seven people that you're going to have to answer to. I guess there just comes a point where you just, I don't know, maybe you just become your own person with your own light. And you're just like, I have to write these things almost like break away from what you've been taught. Exactly. um, Exactly. I think that there's a moment where you... You just say it's okay if people hear this, you know, like telling the story and getting the honest reaction and making someone somewhere feel less alone can become more important than that bit of discomfort that you have to feel by telling your truth. But it's hard and you do it all the time. I think that when you do it, it, it generally when people are like, you know, I'm sure that you have this in spades, people from across the world are like, thank you. Thank you for doing this. And it's worth the discomfort. Yeah, that's the thing. It's worth the discomfort. It's definitely scary. But being able to give people a voice, have women be able to relate to it, you know, hear these stories and kind of feel a little bit less alone than I feel like that's, you know, you've kind of done your job. So it's amazing. And you have a collection of short stories called Ghost Lover, um, which is coming out this summer. What's the inspiration behind that and you're going to send me a copy? I or? am going to send you a copy. <laughs> I would love to. Are you kidding? Um, you know, Ghost Lover is, if I could do anything, my dream is to live somewhere in the Cotswolds and write short stories all day and have like cows and sheep and then see my child when she comes home from school and do nothing else. Just write for those like six, eight hours that she's in school and then be with her and cows. And, that and sounds stuff. perfect. That's what I want. <laughs> so the short stories, I love short stories. My favorite books are usually collections of short stories. I think that they can be such perfect, beautiful pieces. And these short stories in particular, for me, it's it's a lot of the stuff that I witnessed in my 20s and dating and the absolute hellscape of New York City 
um, when you're single and alone. And it's something that I care a lot about young women in their 20s, because when I was in my 20s and when I had lost my parents and I was sort of like in this wasteland of not having anyone. And I think that there's such a unique pain and a unique loneliness that comes from that time period, especially with, you know, Instagram and social media and the things that young women are meant to aspire to is so much. And I, I love the idea of telling younger women, I've felt that way and I've made it through. And I thought I wasn't going to make it through. The texting, the dating apps, all of that stuff, I think is such a clusterfuck of pain and self-abuse sometimes. And if I can do anything to sort of uh, light the path through it, that's what I wanted. And so Ghost Lover for me is kind of a guidepost of going through your 20s and looking for love and being destitute and finding it sometimes. Well, that sounds like a book that I'm going to need stat. <laughs> um, honestly. <laughs> we're going to take another quick break. And while we're away, why don't you take a moment to go to service95.com and subscribe to our Service95 newsletter. Our debut issue is out now and features some incredible stories by some of my favorite writers from around the world. A new issue of Service95 will hit your inbox every Thursday, and I don't think you'll want to miss a second of what we've been working on. So subscribe now at service95.com. We'll be right back after this short break. Before we get on to like one of my favorite bits about this show and like wanting to ask you about the lists and um, really get into that. What does the future hold for you? What have you got planned? Apart from Bath and the Cotswolds and more short stories and cows. No, that's not in the plan. That's in the dream. Okay, that's um, in the dream. You know, I am very fortunate <laughs> enough to have a lot of projects lined up. I'm writing the movie version of Animal with MGM wow. and Plan B, which are two fantastic partners. And I feel so, so beyond grateful. I'm also writing a film version of a story that I published in Playboy a couple of years ago called um, Dr. Fuck. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, and that's, that's a I'll horror. read that one. That's a horror. It's a horror movie. And uh, my next book will be about grief, a nonfiction book about grief, somewhat in the same style as Three Women. Okay. And then there's a couple of other TV shows in the mix. So cool. So many amazing things lined up. I'm also looking forward to hearing more and reading the book about, you know, grief. Have you got a name for that yet? No. That's going to be cool. I Are always, you still in the, in the research I, phases? I'm in the research phase, but what's funny is I always put names for my documents, whether or not um, they're going to stick. And that current one is dead people. Which okay. Because <laughs> I really like just being very straight. But what's funny is with Dr. Fuck, it was a Word document that when I was writing the story for Playboy, I just called it that. Like, And when I sent it to my editor, I hadn't changed it. And my editor was like, um, so 
I know that you didn't mean for Dr. Fuck to be the headline, but I feel like it's the best one <laughs> we could have gotten. So that's how it's going in. So now I should be a little bit more careful. So perhaps the book on grief will be called Dead People, but I don't think so. It's okay. a little, a little darker right. than I'd like oh. the tone to be. <laughs> All right, well, we'll we'll wait for that one. Um, (laughs) So now, as I go into my list, I I said that I was going to touch back on this about your love story. Now, I read an article (laughs) about an estate agent, or was it a homeless estate agent that actually (laughs) helped you find your dream West Village apartment in New York. And, well, I mean, I don't want to tell the story. I feel like you should tell the story, but this is, it it grows into this like magnificent love story that I feel like deserves a book of its own. But tell us all a little bit about your quite magical love story. And then I want to know the West Village being one of my favorite places in New York. I want to know your favorite spots in the West Village. You got it. Okay. Well, so I was looking for an apartment and I was in a very dark place. I feel like this entire conversation has just been about my dark places. So my apologies, (laughs) but I was in one of these dark places. And, you know, in in New York, there's, or at least back, this was about over a decade ago. There's a lot of Craigslist ads. I opened up a Craigslist link that said, Jane Street, private elevator, 2,500 a month. And I was like, well, that's not bad. <laughs> yeah. Private elevator, I'll take that. And I was so foolish. Um, it was one of those bait and switch things. And and the man who I was meeting was like, meet me on the corner of Sixth and Grove. And I meet this guy and he's got this minivan and it's dirty. It was quite a scene. Okay. Um, it was an insane person, basically. And so he started taking me around and he told me he owned all of the West Village. And I was like, then how come he, you know, has holes in his shoes and his pants? And anyway, this guy, um, this man, he was in his 70s, he took me around to all these apartments. And I was like, you know, this guy is so interesting. I should write about him. And I pitched a story about him to my editor at, at New York. And so I started writing about him. And I found out he was actually kind of mostly homeless. But yet he knew all these great places. He had keys to all these like new apartments before anybody else did because he was paying people off. It was just such a intriguing situation. And then one day he's like, well, if you're writing a story about me, you should meet my son. We're estranged. And I was like, okay. We go for coffee at Cafe Colum in Tribeca. And this guy walks in and it's his estranged son. And he was really cute. And he said something right away. I had just said that I loved a movie and he told me that the movie sucked. And he said, let me tell you why it sucks. And I love that he kind of changed my mind because I'm so opinionated and I was just so intrigued. And we ended up, you know, we made a plan to see each other again under the auspices of a further interview. And my friends were like, wait, wait, you're going out with the homeless broker's son? Yeah, And, you know, cut to a decade later and the homeless broker is my daughter's grandfather. So I really, really sort of got into it's that. Just, it's just but. amazing. It's just like the most like unconventional love story. But you're like, why the fuck would this not happen? And, and especially in New York, I feel like that's exactly the kind of story that you would expect. And it's the coolest ever. Thank you. It is. It's fun. It's, it's, it's really, you know, we talk a lot about how so many different things had to happen in order 
for us to, you know, I should be married to a very nice and staid editor, you know, and like not be getting into like ridiculous fights and, you know, where we have a very volatile <laughs> relationship, <laughs> but it's also, um, it's very loving. And uh, yeah, he's, he's a perfect person for me, even though he's got his own insanities and I could not have found that any other way. So, you know, it's cool. <laughs> Very cool. Well, I, thank you for sharing that with us. That's, of uh, <laughs> that's a really epic story. Okay, so now tell me your five favorite spots in the West Village. Okay, I'm, I'm now, I'm just nervous that they're not totally, is it okay if they crawl out into Tribeca a little bit? It's totally fine, I promise okay. I won't tell anyone. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, one of the places that I love, there's a a shooting club called Tira Asenio. And it's an old Italian social club where they also have guns in the basement. You can shoot at targets. And what I love about it is it's the kind of place that my dad would have loved. He had always known about it, but we had never gotten to go. So I went in the sort of months after he passed away. And so it's a very, you know, it's the idea that he might he might actually hate it. I don't know, but I mm-hmm. pretend that it's someplace we went together because I like it so much. There's a judo place that I used to go to called Oishi Judo that is across from my other favorite place, which is a sushi spot. And there's a restaurant called Isodi that is one okay. of my favorite places. It's beautiful. I love sitting at the bar and having orange wine and eating their pasta. And Delicious. one of my favorite places is the Irish Hunger Memorial. It's on the West Side Highway. It's overlooking the Hudson. It's this absolutely stunning planting, rocks and fescue grass, and it's just absolutely beautiful. And I used to go there and just sit there and think and meditate especially during the week when there weren't any tourists and stuff. It's just a beautiful place. That's one of my favorites as well. Amazing. Okay, cool. Well, then I've got lots of things that I got to like add to my list. I feel like (laughs) West Village, there's so many great restaurants and stuff, but I feel like every time I go, there's this one coffee spot. I don't know if you know, it's called Grounded. It's quite small and you go in and it's like, I mean, it's got like a kind of traditional. I think I know it It used to be called some. Yeah. It's so good and the coffee's so great and it just, I feel very like in my New York element when I grab a coffee think, there and have a walk around the village. So, And there's always um, dogs on the on the steps. Always dogs on the steps. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, think, I, think, I think we're talking about the same spot. Yeah. Um, but that's very cool. Thank you so much. And of course. your top five favorite books of all time. Of course. Okay. So number one is The Little Virtues by Natalia Ginsburg. I think it's absolutely stunning what this woman went through, Natalia Ginsburg, in her private life, um, a husband who was incarcerated and killed in jail, and she was still writing things about, you know, trying to to go against the very laws that were killing the people that she loved. She's just one of the most inspiring people and one of the greatest writers about womanhood, motherhood, and personhood ever. Days of Abandonment by Elena Ferrante. I love all of Ferrante, but that is a unique one for me. It's so slim and easy to read and beautiful. I was talking about collections of stories. I think that The Visiting Privilege by Joy Williams. One of my friends, the writer Adam Ross, said that it's as though Joy... Williams has stepped into the beyond, has like seen the next level and is coming back to tell us about it. 
I just love her. She's uh, unbelievable, transcendental. Airships by Barry Hanna. Barry Hanna is was a truly visionary, talented, and just insane writer. And his work is just so gorgeous. And I think he's one of the few men who writes very, quote-unquote, masculine, macho, yet also is able to to understand the female experience at the same time. I think James Salter does that too, but I think Barry Hannah does it in kind of a, a wild way. And finally, Fever Dream by Samantha Schweblin. It is just an absolutely stunning book about climate change, but also about motherhood and the two things sort of interpolated with one another in a way that's just magical and haunting. Amazing. Lisa, thank you so, so much, <laughs> so much for your it. time for your insight for me it's just been so exciting to get to talk to you about about your Gosh. writing I'm I'm like I said in the beginning I'm such a fan so this has really been really special for me I've loved 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 this of course thank you really this is lovely and I'm so grateful to be on this and I'm so excited for this I think this is just going to be an amazing undertaking like people are going to flip Thanks so much to Lisa for an inspiring and extremely entertaining conversation. And thanks so much to all of you for listening. With Lisa offering us some of her favorite books at the moment, I'd love to hear from you about what's keeping you turning the pages these days. Especially with my tour having just begun, I'm always looking for new reading material for the road. So please send me a voice note with your submissions or in good old fashioned text to podcast at service95.com. If you want to include your Instagram handles in your email, we might feature a few pics on our social media in the weeks ahead. As you may have read on our Service 95 newsletter a few weeks ago, I recently took myself out on a solo date in New York City before the tour started. That was always something that seemed quite frightening to me, so in all honesty, I just felt like I needed to prove to myself that I could conquer that fear. I went to this amazing restaurant called Cosme, which is a contemporary Mexican restaurant in the Flatiron District. And if you haven't been, you should definitely check it out. So it was me and my book, and I sat down for one of the most wonderful meals I've ever had. I also had some amazing drinks there as well. So it was just me and my book, and I sat down for one of the most wonderful meals I've ever had. I spoke to some of the tables nearby. I made some friends at the kitchen staff who also went on to sign my menu, which I'm going to keep that forever. And I learned quite a bit about myself and the joys of independence in the process. It reminded me that I like my own company and just to slow down for a moment. So now I'm really ready to repeat the process in other more unfamiliar cities, especially as I'm touring the world this next year. I'm excited to see what comes of more of these solo dates. I'll keep you updated on any future plans on the newsletter, which you can subscribe to at service95.com for free. I wanted to leave you with one more of your voice notes from another listener in the US. Hi, Dua. My name's Alondra. I'm listening from the San Francisco Bay Area region. I really, really enjoyed the first episode. So good. Um, Something that really got my attention was the conversation about social media. And I was wondering, as someone who has millions of followers, how do you deal with being constantly in the public eye? And do you ever feel like social media takes away from fully being in the moment or experiencing something fully? Uh, Yeah, thank you. Hey, Alondra, thank you so much for your question. It's a very interesting one, actually, because I feel like it's very, very easy to let social media get in the way of what you're doing or getting so sucked into it that you essentially forget to really be present in the moment. I think that was something I had to learn along the way. I do actually try and put my phone away 
as much as I can and only really take small pictures just to kind of give me a little reminder of the evening or whatever I was doing that day, but not allowing it to consume everything that I do. And so that's kind of one way that I, I kind of keep that under control. So thank you again so much to all of you for these voice notes. I really love it because it feels like a really nice way to connect with you all. And while I remember we're translating this podcast into three other languages, Spanish, French and Portuguese, each language version has its own podcast feed. You just search Duolipa at your service in your favorite podcast platform and choose your preferred language. We'll be back next week with another very special guest, the amazing musician CL. Bye for now.